Hello and welcome to the latest episode of II's The ETFs Show. My name is Tom Bailey and I'm the ETFs editor at II. So on today's show, we're joined by Mark Makepeace. Mark is a veteran of the City of London, having started working for the Stock Exchange in the 1980s. Most notably, however, he was founding chief executive of FTSE International and for decades oversaw the creation of the FTSE brand and indices. He recently offered a new book, FTSE, The Inside Story, which tells the history of how this now iconic British brand was created. So Mark, the FTSE 100 is launched in 1984, but perhaps we should start with what was used as a performance index for UK stocks before then. There were two things. I mean, you had the FT30 that gave you the sort of the immediate what was happening during the day. Sometimes there were there were issues with that. There's a wonderful story where some of the price reporters from the FT who used to collect the prices from the stock exchange floor, the person who was due to do to collect the prices one morning um, had a dentist appointment, and therefore the uh, the market was sharply down, and yet the index was static. Uh, and I think a trader rang up to complain. Someone told them that, uh, well, the price collector is out uh, at the dentist, but as soon as he comes back in later this morning, he'll make sure the index gets updated quickly. So <laughs> there, were, there were stories like that in the early days. And of course, the actuaries in, in the UK then stepped in and they started to develop you know, what has become the sort of the all share index which became then the performance benchmark for funds in the UK. At the time, 1984, you have in the US, this point, the the Dow and the S&P. Was the UK unique in having this kind of relatively unsophisticated index or, or was that the global norm at the time? Well, no, I think the FT followed the Dow Jones. If you think about the Dow Jones, it's a, a price-weighted index of 30 stocks and the FT very much sort of followed the Dow Jones itself. It's only when the S&P was adopted for futures that really the London market, taking its lead from the US, wanted to develop a better index to support the launch of futures on the life market. All of the parties eventually got together. The London Stock Exchange and Life started the initiative. The actuaries helped out. And it was only in the very late stages that the FT itself got involved. You mentioned this in your book, uh, the kind of uneasy relationship with the FT. I was wondering if you could explain this, uh, this, this kind of story. It's quite interesting. Well, there was rivalry because the, the FT produced indices for the UK market, not just the FT30. Then they collaborated with the actuaries. So I, I think the FT saw themselves as the, um, you know, as the market standard and the reporter of what was going on in the market. And here was two challenges, really, that the market was moving to uh, much greater technology, much more real time, uh, which moved it away from the FT. Uh, and of course, you, you had this uh, upstart, the London Stock Exchange, coming in and, and wanting to calculate not only a new index, but one that was calculated electronically and calculated on a much quicker, faster uh, basis than the FT could match. So, so you, you then had the FT eventually coming together with the stock exchange, because I think the combination of the two, you know, really launched the FTSE 100. I, I think if the FTSE 100 had been promoted just by the exchange, uh, I, I don't think it would have been as quick a success as it was. So if you fast forward to the 
1990s, at this point, Foots International is is operationally an independent company. Could you give a kind of brief overview of how this developed from the initial launch of the industry in 84 and then your role in it? I was asked to get involved in the indices for the UK market uh, in the early 90s. I spent the first couple of years then working with the actuaries, the FT and the exchange and really trying to get those through three bodies to collaborate and work together. And we did that successfully. We launched the mid-250, we extended the coverage of the all-share, and we launched the FTSE small cap. So we had had some success in collaborating. We also collaborated on uh, defining a, a, a new, more modern industry classification. So the next step was to try and solidify that and make it much more permanent. And I think that was the challenge in setting up FTSE. But we, we finally achieved that in 95, but we were very much a startup. On the, f- the first day, there were just nine of us and the revenues were very small. We had to rebuild systems, develop the strategy for expansion, but it was very much a startup and, and it had a startup mentality. Uh, and I think that helped us enormously. You mentioned the FTSE 250. Uh, I was wondering if you walk us through the kind of decision making to create this new index. Because I, I remember in the book, you mentioned kind of you you uh, seem to consult with several fund managers across the UK and kind of, you know, what was the demand that people was arguing for it or anyone against it? It was it was a strange case because we, again, we'd taken that, our lead from the US where they had um, introduced a, a mid cap for the US market. And I was convinced that there was a, a, a mid-cap group of stocks in the UK. And we had this gap that existed between the FTSE 100 and the small cap index at the time was the Horgavet uh, small cap index. So there was a gap uh, and there were a number of stocks there that were simply not being covered um, because they sat between those two main indices. So I argued that that we should actually start to think about the whole market and we should think about developing a mid-cap immediately below the FTSE 100. And it it seemed like, to me, a sensible idea. But I took that out um, to the largest 30 fund managers in the UK. And when we uh, reviewed the results, I think there were only two fund managers that supported us. I think there were 28 that said this was nonsense. There was no mid-cap effect in the UK. The UK market was much smaller than the US and it, and it wasn't needed. But <laughs> undeterred and uh, working with the actors and the FTA, um, uh, I convinced a smaller group that we should go ahead. Uh, and we <laughs> did that. We went back a year later. And of course, the impact of introducing the index meant that mid-cap stocks had their best year and and had outperformed large and small caps during that year. And of course, we went back to those same 30 fund managers and we we found that the vast majority of them now recognise that there was a a mid-cap effect and and some of them even started mid-cap funds. The lesson I learned was that um, you you can consult, but uh, if you're trying to innovate, you can't just ask permission. You have to take a chance. You have to take a risk. And at what point did you start to try and construct indices representing overseas markets? So you mentioned in the book the FTSE ASE uh, index for Greece and then, yeah. and then uh, several several attempts in China. We inherited from the FT a, a global index and um, there were a number of partners to that index. I mean, Goldman Sachs was a partner. Uh, S&P actually was a partner. The coverage wasn't as good as MSCI. The coverage was limited. 
and therefore I bought out the um, Goldman Sachs and S&P at the time. And I also bought the um, ING Bearings Emerging Markets, which were probably one of the, the best known emerging market indices at that time. And yeah. I put that together. And that's when I really started to focus on international markets because I could see that MSCI needed a competitor. I received a lot of encouragement from international investors um, to create that competitor. But without the acquisitions, it would have taken us a very long time. So with those acquisitions, we still had to innovate. We had to expand the coverage so that we had deeper coverage than MSCI. We introduced stronger governance, defining, you know, uh, emerging and developed markets in much more detail, creating engagement with those markets. And that's when we found ourselves starting to engage with markets that either were not covered or were probably in the wrong category. And we yeah. came up against the political issue of, you know, if you demote or promote a country, that's a huge change. Investors, global investors want stability. But if you are to have a robust system, you need to create the rules and you need to ensure that you stick to those rules. Uh, and therefore, there were some difficult decisions. You know, demoting Greece was a difficult decision because, you know, it was, we had, looking back, wrongly promoted it when um, the euro was created. We promoted Portugal uh, and Greece to develop and it wasn't until the financial crisis that, that really we then took what I think it was the right decision was to put Greece in the emerging markets category. But it took us it took us some time to, to get there. And we worked yeah. very hard with the Greek authorities and the Greek market to constantly keep improving their market. But it was just in the end, the financial crisis was just too much for that market and liquidity in that market um, dried up. We demoted it. That's an interesting uh, point. Also, kind of, you mentioned uh, the decision of FTSE to promote uh, South Korea to develop market status, whereas our listeners will know the MSCI, one of the biggest competitors, keeps it still in EM status. And that, as you say, affects billions of uh, dollars of fund flows. Um, and then I guess more, more recently, uh, another competitor of the FTSE, the S&P decision to add Tesla, Again, shows the power of because uh, now all these all these fund managers have to go and buy Tesla. It shows the power of index providers in the decision making. And I and I think in the early days, I think the the governance lacked the robustness and oversight that it has today. But you still have different approaches from different index providers. So yeah. FTSE, I, I would say, is is very methodical in its approach. It sort of analyzes everything. It gets, um, it builds a consensus amongst the, the big fund management houses that um, use these indices. But it, it, it sort of almost um, constructs these indices in a very sort of building block approach. So it takes the whole market. It, it, it then from there removes stocks that are um, uh, do not meet its criteria, removes countries that do not meet its criteria. It engages to ensure that, um, you know, those criteria are understood and that everyone mm -hmm. has a chance to meet them. Um, and, it, and it builds from that base. You know, S&P has a different approach. S&P is much more taking approach, particularly on the US market, where it will keep some stocks out for longer 
and will make more judgments on its rules based around its rules. It is still rule driven, but it, but yeah. it just has a, a slightly different approach. Tesla's a good example, but there are many others. The FTSE, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's no kind of uh, these profitability requirements that the S&P has That's right. with the 500 in there. And then the DAX uh, is looking at uh, introducing some new profitability requirements. I suppose you're, you're not a fan of, of such approach or, or do you just think it's different, different attempt? If you think about it, what the index is meant to do is to capture the investability opportunity. And that investment opportunity includes companies that do not make a profit. If you had bought Tesla at a much earlier stage in your portfolio, you would have benefited enormously. So by setting governance and profitability standards, you know, you're really not representing that investable universe, if you want to think of it that way. The broad-based indices have a role to show what the market itself is doing. Now, there, yeah. there are some problems there because, you know, as the, the index funds, the passive funds need to track and follow these indices, you know, you do need some liquidity criteria. Otherwise, you distort prices. And it's been argued you need some governance standards. So, for instance, in my time, I, I stood up against SNAP um, because the shares for uh, normal investors, there were no voting rights attached to those, none at all. So investors had no real opportunity to express their displeasure or to express their wish for change. So we did stand up on that issue. But again, there are more and more companies that do have voting restrictions. So you have to be careful if you go too far, the index is distorted because it no longer properly represents the the whole market. So there is a balance uh, you have to strike. So back to the FTSE 100, um, in the book, you recount how the index became increasingly international in the 2000s, yeah. uh, particularly with kind of major mining companies uh, looking to list on the LSE with seemingly explicit intention of getting included in the FTSE 100 index. Um, so I wonder if you could explain like kind of why this happened and what the general reaction was at the time. Yes, I, th- I think the UK market adopted indexation uh, very much like the US market. Uh, And, of course, the reputation of the UK for good governance was attracting all kinds of foreign listed companies. And the sort of passive funds were almost forced buyers of these stocks. So we had a a number of companies that were coming to the market. Many of them had international shareholders who had a majority stake. uh, And that started to create issues for us because suddenly you know if there were any issues uh, if there were any risks it was very difficult for investors again to influence those shareholders so we started then to try and address that problem by insisting that companies uh, abide by the takeover panel rules and we started to go in some ways beyond the regulatory requirements Um, But there was pressure on both us and the regulators to increase the the criteria um, for companies coming to the market. And it was simply because, again, those 
people following the indices, those passive investors, were, were forced buyers. We felt was distorting the market. So we started to step by step introduce rules um, to help us control that so that um, we were trying to represent companies that were considered to some degree had their sort of either head office or, or, or were based out of London and decision making was made out of London. And investors, domestic UK investors, had an ability to enforce the um, takeover panel uh, and other requirements that you know they they had with other UK stocks. So that was the thinking. But it did take us time because we were feeling our way and we came under enormous political pressure to try to include as many companies as possible. Um, because yeah. at the time, I think politicians felt that it was good for the UK. You know, many uh, large fund managers started to speak out uh, against it and slowly we built a consensus uh, and found a way to, to managing this and, and getting the, the sort of right approach. But it did take us time. I think for, for many UK investors, the international nature of the FTSE 100 index kind of became very apparent following the devaluation of sterling in 2016. Uh, and the fact that it had little correlation with the UK economy. Uh, uh, what do you make of it? And does it matter? Should it matter? More and more companies are becoming international. As, as we move to a digital world, I think more and more companies are moving to becoming international. I mean, the UK now, you can argue that there's you know, less than 25% of, of, of the FTSE 100 is, is actually exposed to the UK economy. So it, it is, and, and it will continue to reduce. You know, And as the UK is successful, and UK companies are successful in growing their businesses globally, um, you would expect that to um, decrease. And, and we shouldn't try and prevent that. But those who do want to then invest into the UK and solely into the UK or to capture what would be changes in the um, UK economy, they need to look at smaller companies. Uh, and that's where I think the 250 has played an important role. Uh, and that's where I think small cap indices play an important role. But we will see even those indices become more international because small companies today with the digital technology that's available, you know, are becoming themselves much more global. I suppose you could reach a situation where kind of uh, different indices around the world become clustered around uh, certain types of stocks. So, the, you know, the, the US index could, is, is dominated by tech that could continue. Uh, and it's increasingly international, I guess, as it is dominated by the big tech companies who earn kind of half their earnings abroad. And then the UK is dominated by uh, minerals, oil, uh, mining, this kind of stuff, and then cyclical value stocks. And so I guess kind of could make the argument that one day people will view indices in terms of what type of stocks they expose you to and, and the factors rather than the country itself. I, I think that's true. Uh, I think that's true. But the other trend you've had is you, you've had these new markets come uh, or, or you know so you've had china as opening up and china becomes a bigger and bigger part of portfolios in the middle east you've had a number of the middle east companies open up and, and they're now becoming a bigger part of global portfolios but i do think we're heading for a world where the combination of the us and china will dominate global portfolios 
yeah, and and technology will be a large part of both the US and the uh, China uh, indices. And I, th I think that's just the world as it is evolving. And the indices must reflect the way the world is evolving. So I think as we as we look forward, I, I think just by the fact that China becomes a bigger and bigger part of global portfolios, other countries like the UK and, and even countries like Japan will shrink in terms of their size relative to the overall global market. I, I see a world where, you know, within five years, we're probably looking at 65% of global portfolios is made up of just the US and China, 65, 70%. And if that's the case, really, your decisions about those two markets will determine whether or not you outperform global equities. So another major talking point about FTSE 100 is its lack of tech companies. Uh, there's obviously a couple, but compared to other major indices, there's a kind of distinct lack of tech. Uh, became particularly apparent this year as kind of tech stocks outperformed other, other kind of stocks. Yeah. Um, so why does the FTSE lack tech companies and, and what, if anything, can or should be done about it? I think it, it lacks large tech companies. I think it has a lot of tech industry um, that has um, you know, done very, very well. But they, they, they're smaller companies, uh, and as they get larger, they very often get bought out by these large companies. And then the reason for that is, if you look to the US, the uh, private equity market and the venture capital markets in the US are just huge, and they mm. provide funding for these companies to develop in the private market. Um, so they're coming to market much bigger size and they have access to that funding. So, you know, you, you will see much more tech that is, is funded out of the US. And also in China, where you've got the central government trying to support these large tech companies in a much bigger way. Uh, I think it's the combination of those two is really been the drive behind technology and the large technology companies and that we're seeing. So I don't think it's necessarily that the UK is not producing technology companies. It is, but they're smaller uh, and they they don't have that financial support that you you see in the US or China. Uh, and, it, and it will be difficult to see how to develop that, certainly to the same scale as either of those two countries. That makes sense. So, so you mentioned in the book, the rise of passive investing, which obviously very important for anyone who provides an index, uh, uh, particularly ETS in the 90s, she used to kind of say introduce a new business model for index providers. So, you know, it's quite different from being a performance benchmark for active managers to instead being something yeah. that fund managers directly replicate. Uh, so, one you can walk us through kind of put the company's kind of uh, growth in, in the ETF and indexing industry. The ETF market, it was an innovation coming out of the US. Even today, the US market is you know, huge compared to the ETF markets uh, around the world. But it, but it, it, it really spurred on a, a change in indexation from being an industry that was trying to measure the various markets and parts of markets to, to help performance measurement and research to one where it was, you know, actively supporting the creation of passive vehicles. And I think we then had it spurred even further because it started to challenge active management because the, the attraction of, of the index funds is two things. It's one is it's low cost 
and the other is that it has much greater transparency. Um, And those two in combination are very powerful. And then Rob Arnold um, came along with ideas about um, actually you could create indices around investment themes or investment practices. Uh, And I met up with Rob and and, um, actually Cowper's brought us together because Cowper's wanted to trial these what have become known as smart beta, the first smart beta indices. I worked with Robbie in providing those. The first were fundamental indices. Calpers is the California pension fund. That's right. Calpers yeah. is the California pension fund. And, and that received yeah, fierce criticism from the industry because suddenly we were moving away from cap-weighted indices. And here we were really following and replacing investment strategies, but doing it in a systematic way. I think that spurred a huge growth and, as you say, another change in the um, sort of business model for index providers. And we've seen that growth. And we're now seeing that evolve even further because, you know, what we have seen is public markets, because money is cheap, are shrinking relative to private markets. And people are looking to get exposure for private markets, for fixed income, for alternatives in a much low cost and much more transparent way. So the index providers are starting to move into those markets. And I think you'll continue to see this growth in indexation due to just those two factors. It is the low cost and the greater transparency. Thanks, Mark. Last question. What do you see as the future of indexing? Well, I, I, I think the market is still in exciting. We're, we're three big players in the equity uh, uh, market. Um, yeah. But there are many, many index providers. Uh, and I do see uh, the index world moving much more to a sort of multi-asset and a mass customization approach. Uh, and I think at the heart of it will be asset allocation. And I think they'll work with uh, active and passive managers so that um, you know you have an even bigger offering in terms of indexation. So I, I think it will be the challenge for investors to look at this choice and think about how best to invest. But they they will almost have a wealth of choice. The indexation and the index providers will be working, I think, um, with very strong relationships with wealth managers and fund managers around the world um, in providing that choice. Thanks for that, Mark. A lot to think about. And thanks everyone for listening. If you found any of that interesting, I strongly encourage you to buy a copy of Mark's book, FTSE, The Inside Story. I'm not exaggerating when I say this is one of the best books I've read all year.